Hello, fellow hopeful romantics. Before we begin, I'm taking it back to elementary school with a few announcements. First off, what she's having is moving to date night. So watch out for our episodes now dropping every other Friday. And meet cutes moving too, to Tuesdays and Thursdays. So make sure to head over there and check out Ain't Love Super, their new superhero love series, wherever you get your podcasts. Because after listening to our guest today, I think you're going to realize that villains need meet cutes too. All right, that's it. I'll have what she's having. I love relationships. I love romantic comedies. I love love. We don't know what Cinderella looked like because she's not real. Yes, they freaking got it. Really earn that happily ever after at the end. Change the writing. It's not that hard. Hello, all you hopeful romantics. And welcome to What She's Having, presented by Meet Cute. I'm your host, Ashley Eskew, and oh, what a treat we have for you today. Do you remember the mean girl in high school? What about the one on TV? Today we have cult classic queen, Jenna Lee Green, who played Libby Chesler opposite Melissa Joan Hart in the 90s television show, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Oh my God, remember Salem? When I was a child, I thought he was the funniest thing in the world. But her cult queen status doesn't end there. She has also been seen in the hit Broadway musical Wicked as both Elphaba and Nessa Rose, as well as, for any major theater lovers out there, Bear, a pop opera, she originated the role of Ivy. It's no surprise to me that so many things she's done have developed deep cult followings. She is just one of the best humans around, and I always love getting her perspective. Today, we talked a little about how we may have misidentified who our mean girls and villains are. That is why it is my pleasure to introduce to you one of the best, Jenna Lee Green. Jenna Lee Green, thank you so much for being here. I am so excited to have you. I'm excited to be here. I get to see your pretty face. Aw, yours too. (laughs) I'm pretty sure this is a fair assessment. You are basically a cult classic queen. Oh my gosh. I think so. And you've been professionally working entertainment for what, over 25 years since you were a child. Yeah, yeah, Uh, yeah, yeah. Would you mind taking (laughs) us back to playing Libby Chesler in Sabrina the Teenage Witch? How did you even get that role? Where did it all begin? Yeah, you know, first of all, I'm a twin. So when you grow up as a twin, it's kind of like, you, I, I've never met twins in my life who have similar personalities. They really, like, it's like yin and yang, I feel like almost always. And I don't know if that's just an innate biology thing or if it's just when you grow up with someone who has the same everything as you for the most part. And so I, I was actually really shy as a child. And my sister was the one that was just so boisterous and energetic and watch me, notice me and, and in the best way, but she just had, she was always putting on a show and, and I would just kind of follow along. Like I just would do whatever Jesse did. And um, when we were, gosh, I don't even, I'm not even sure how old, maybe 10 or 12, our church had kind of like a, a choir and like a little drama department. They do like one or two little, you know, almost like cute little pageantry type shows they always had you know you, there's there's all these like 
kind of Christian broadcasting things that you can you can find these like they're plays, but they're they always have a theme, you know, whatever. So my mom got really involved in that and kind of just brought my sister and I with. And so we started doing that. And I think my mom discovered that I kind of came out of my shell a lot when I was doing those types of things. And my mom's friend who was the choir director had said to her at one point, and again, mind you, I wasn't six or eight, I was like 10. She said, you know, Jenny can sing, right? And my mom was like, oh, she sings around the house all the time. But I, and she's like, well, she has a big solo in the in the little you know ch- church play or whatever that we're presenting right now. And I know that you haven't been in there for any of the music rehearsals, but you're gonna be surprised. And my mom just kind of laughed it off. My my father had a really good voice. My mom doesn't sing a note. So I don't even re- remember this really, but apparently the night of the show happened and I sang my big song and my mom was like, oh my, you know, it's still, it's a 10 year old child's voice, but at the same time, it was very clear that I had inherited some sort of singing talent and I loved it. And then I started doing anything I could. There was, I'm from Southern California originally. And as you know, there's a lot of theater, a lot of community theater, but really good community theater. It's true. So I started doing anything I could. I would do stuff in school, but I would also, you know, do local things. And in my early teens, early to mid teens, I became obsessed. It was just everything was theater, musical theater. I played Anne in the Diary of Anne Frank. I did Bye Bye Birdie. I did all, just all these shows you could think of, whatever school was doing. And I did a production of Into the Woods as a teenager. And there happened to be a manager that was there. I don't even remember why, but she kind of approached me afterwards and asked if I had representation and if I was interested. And I kind of, you know, was like, I don't know. I don't. Even being as close as I was to LA and Hollywood, cause I'm, you know, from this, I'm from Ventura County. I still didn't get, I, we never went into the city. It's like living on Long Island or Staten Island. They never come into Manhattan. It's kind of similar to that. Totally. So she talked to my parents and um, I just kind of jumped in and the very first pilot season that I, I, it was kind of like they were already gung-ho in pilot season when I got kind of really into it professionally. This manager took me to an agent, they signed me, and I came really close on the series Clueless when they were making Clueless into a TV series. Wait, there was a series? There was a series of Clueless. I think it, it, it may have only been one season. I can't remember. But they did a series of Clueless. So I came really close to getting that for the role of Ty, which ended up not being a series regular. It was kind of like a recurring role that was on it. But I didn't get it. But it had the same casting director who was about to start this other project called Sabrina the Teenage Witch. So she remembered me from Clueless. And she brought me in originally for Jenny, who was the best friend character in the first season. With the red curly hair? Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. okay. So I came in and auditioned for Jenny, and I, I want to say I auditioned, and then there was a week or two, I didn't hear anything. And then we got a call where Ellie Canner is the unbelievably amazing casting director who, who cast that show. And she said, listen, I'm really interested in Jenna. I want her to, to come to producers for Jenny, 
But we have this other role that we're just starting to cast. And I feel like she's a good fit for that role. And they really want someone who's just complete opposite from our lead, from Melissa Joan Hart. So I went back in just to her, knowing I was going to go to producers again later in the week. But she brought me back in and she gave me the role of Lisa. It was originally named Lisa. And she was the nemesis. And so I read it. And I think, you know, I had... um my acting teacher at the time was Ernie Lively, who's Blake Lively's father. I, I grew up going to class with, with Blake running around the studio. She's younger than me, but running around the studio as a child, her whole family, they're the loveliest family you'll ever meet. Her dad's an acting teacher? I had no idea. Oh, her, her dad's an amazing actor, but he used to years ago. He doesn't anymore. But he used to run, yeah, an acting studio. And so many of us like went through this studio. I loved it. They were, it was just, they were the best. So I remember taking the scenes to him and we were reading through it and trying to find some, you know, something to make it different and something to make it interesting. And we had this conversation where the idea came up to, you know, if you play into mean, it's not really as, it's in comedy, it's not as funny as playing against it. It's the same as like, it's much more, you know, intriguing when you're watching a drama to watch someone try not to cry as opposed to blubbering. Absolutely. So the idea came to say it with a smile. So everything mean that you say, you just say it with a smile. It's almost as if people kind of feel like, did she, wait, is that what she said? Because you're just so nice about it. And so that was the idea that, that we came up with. And so that's what I took in. So I probably had four more auditions where I, or no, I probably had two more auditions after that where I read Jenny and they changed it to Libby. I read both roles, kept coming back to producers. Cause this is also back in the day when you auditioned. Like, I think I auditioned for that show eight times before I booked it. That doesn't happen anymore. Now right. it's once maybe you have a call back, but half the time they just tape you and they cast it off of that. So I probably, I think I had like eight auditions. At some point in the mix, they changed it. They dropped Jenny and just had me reading for Libby. But it was a process every week. Okay, you're going back and uh, you're going back. And it was, there was new girls with me every time I'd be there. And sometimes I'd see one or two that would stick around for a little bit. It was a really long process. And then I ended up getting it. But it was all, and Nell Scavell, who created the show with, with Melissa Joan Hart's mom, Paula, um, but she kind of created Libby because Libby didn't come from one of the Archie comic book characters. She, she's told the story before that it was the say it with a smile aspect that, that kind of got me the job because I kept saying these really mean things, but I would just smile when I said it. So it, that was truly what ended up getting me the role and something that I've carried with me in any of the, you know, now you, I've done numerous mean girls <laughs> and I just kind of always kept that with me so that was that my jaw's actually on the floor because I think that's part of the current like mean girl archetype and I'm realizing right now like you and your casting director may have created that that's incredible <laughs> I mean it's so weird to think how long ago it was because then you think of like these iconic mean girls after that you know Regina George and mm -hmm. and and so many others after you know it, it, I mean Libby was first I don't you know and I don't think that I'm not saying that anyone was you know copying my mold but I'm just saying that's that was my concept. You know, she says these things that are so mean 
if you spin it and you just smile and you pretend you're nice, it makes it even, it, it makes it hit even harder. Well, because that's the type of manipulation, particularly I think teenage women fall prey to. It's emotional sure. warfare as opposed to overt warfare. And you encapsulated yeah. that. What was your relationship to playing the, you know, in quotes, mean girl archetype at that time? You know, I'm, I'm not going to pretend it wasn't fun. I mean, you know, it's a struggle in life to, you know, bite your tongue sometimes or hold your temper. Everyone has, the, even the nicest person in the world has their moments when they just want to, you know, at someone and you fight that all, or, or you don't, some people don't, but I find myself fighting that all the time when I want to be catty or snarky. And so literally my job every day was to go to work Somebody else makes me look fabulous because Libby had great hair and makeup and outfits. And then I just got to, to be a brat. And then they said, cut. And we were all back to hanging out and going to lunch and everybody really liked each other. But it was the best job ever to get to play something like that, which was, you know, very far from, especially at that point in my life, you know, very far from who I was. And that was my job and I got paid for it. So I, I loved it. I loved it. I mean, it sounds like there was a freedom in not having to be the nice girl. Yeah. You know, I've always had this theory that if you look at a lot of people who have kind of famously played mean girls, a lot of them are the loveliest people you'll ever meet. If we all think about being a teenage girl in high school, I can guarantee you could probably tell me the name of the meanest girl in school still to this day. I can. Girls who were mean to you, you remember them and you remember the things that they said or the way that they behaved. That stuff sticks with you. And so in high school, I remember how that, you know, the clicky, you know, junior high and high school, how the clicky kind of mean girls treated me. But if you are the mean girl, you don't think you're the mean girl. So how would you know how to play a mean girl? Because you don't recognize that in yourself. But when you've watched Mean Girls treat other people a specific way for years, especially at that point in my life, because I was like still living through it, I, I just did what they did. It's easier to play sometimes things that are opposite of yourself because you've watched it before, as opposed to recognizing that quality in yourself and figuring out a way to tap into the things about you that you don't even know you do, that other people see. Yeah, when you were asking who was the Mean Girl in your school, I was like, I don't know, but then I then I had a fear it was me. But then I realized no one could no. be meaner than the mean voice in my own head that I think a lot of us women had. I also think we could be our own worst bullies. Listen, you know, being so far removed from high school now, I fully and I, you know, I'm I'm not a therapist. I'm not, you know, it's just my opinion but I feel as though it is very likely that any girl that was the high school bully or mean girl, it was, it all stemmed from her own insecurities. It wasn't, you know, it doesn't matter if she was beautiful or rich or popular in order to behave in that way, in order to truly be remembered as the mean girl from school, it, there is obviously something going on that's their own private struggle there are people that, that I remember as not being very friendly to me in high school who, you know, through the beauty of social media or beauty or curse, um, I'm 
you know, not friends with them now, but you know, your Facebook friends or your whatever. And I see that you see people through that. And of course, social media is a, is a mirror of what you choose to show people. But I don't think that they're that people anymore at all. Like they seem lovely and you have to give people the benefit of growing up and maturing. And if I ran into someone today, who knows if they'd be like, oh my God, I was kind of, you know, I was kind of bitchy. I'm, I apologize. And I don't even need that. But I do think that there are a lot of girls who probably weren't the friendliest in high school who, are, who, who might be lovely people today. Well, speaking of that, you were on a set with a bunch of other teenagers who were all kind of finding fame in their own ways and navigating their own sense of self. Were there any romances or memorable coming of age moments between the cast on the set? Yeah, well, uh, Melissa had a couple different boyfriends and for a, a, a while, James, who was the greatest, but for a couple of seasons, her boyfriend James actually worked on the show as a stand-in. So he was always on set with us. And then Nate Richard, who was our Harvey Kinkle, and Lindsay Sloan, who played Valerie, she came in on season two and kind of jumped into the best friend role. So Lindsay and Nate were a couple for a while. I, I don't know exactly how long, but for a, probably a year or two, they were a couple. So so we they were, you know, series regulars on the show together and they were a real life couple. Was that fun? Was that like a, an extension of high school there on the set? Or was that just you were professionals and that was a part of their life that felt separate? No, we were kids. So we were, we were all really young. So it wasn't... I don't remember them. I actually don't remember them ever fighting or anything like that. So, it, or if they did, they certainly didn't bring it to work. They didn't, they didn't live together or anything like that. You know, Nate would like bring his guitar and his trailer door would be open and just be sitting on the steps and he'd just play his guitar. And, and they would all play hacky sack. Do you remember hacky sack? I never, I, I mean, I've seen she's all that. With Freddie Prince Jr. Ha, key, no, sack. Yeah. <laughs> that was, that was, that was exactly Sabrina time. So yeah, that hacky sack was a big thing. So everybody would stand around and play hacky sack. And it was just, everybody really was friends. And in recent years, most of us have really reconnected, which has been nice. We went years where I don't think most of us really kept in touch with each other. And a few years ago, I don't even know how maybe Melissa instigated it but we all kind of got I have a Sabrina the Teenage Witch text chain oh that it's not I don't we don't have a name for it so it's not it's not labeled that that would be <laughs> hilarious and also lame but um we have a text chain and we all just chit chat and from time to time and they're you know we've gotten together and um if somebody's you know in town or you know it's it's really nice like we have all reconnected as as adults now and it's been lovely. That's an ideal situation, no doubt. You, it was 96 to 99, right? So, mm -hmm. so you were in the heyday of these amazing romantic comedies really turning the lens onto the high school experience. I mean, Drive mm -hmm. Me Crazy was honestly one yep. of my favorites. I know Melissa was in, but were you auditioning mm -hmm. for any of these classic 90s rom-coms at the time? You know, I... I was so young and so new to the business. I don't think I really understood that people would juggle jobs. Mm. So, you know, during our hiatuses, if something came up, I would kind of audition for random things. But I also, being the total theater nerd that I am, I missed theater so much that I did 
musicals in our hiatuses. I played Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz at Music Theater of Southern California. And um, in- wait, wait, wait. I actually no. saw you in that. No. I really did. I was like a young child being like, this is my dream. I think Are I had Yes, 100%. It doesn't even, that theater doesn't even exist anymore. This is San Gabriel, San Gabriel. Civic. Yes. Yes. Oh my, I was Dorothy in that. That was me. <laughs> and we have a very, fun, I have a very funny story from that production. You know, I looked so young. I looked really, really, really young, but I was legal at that point. So uh, one of our audience members, an older, I think it was an older couple who had come to the show one night, they called and made this like frantic call to the theater because they saw Dorothy get into a car and get into a car by herself and drive away. And they were, they were like, she's, she's driving a car. They're like, she got into a car and she's driving a car. Someone called the theater, not thinking I was even 16 years old. Well, that's a gift that has kept on giving (laughs) throughout your life. (laughs) Let's be real. Like, obviously Dorothy is supposed to be very young and I knew how to play into that. And it's a big, you know, it was a big theater. So the little tiny me on that stage, I suppose I see it, but at the same time, to to be that shocked that I'd gotten into a car and drove, driven away to call the theater to, to like ask what was going on. To this day, that is the funniest story, but yeah. You were the first time I heard Somewhere Over the Rainbow belted. Oh. That was like a revelation as a young theater nerd. <sighs> like she took this ballad and she like, I was very young. So my idea of like vocal technique was certainly off, but oh my God, I can't believe I'm just making this connection. <laughs> oh my gosh. That, you know, what's funny is that through, I think Facebook or Facebook groups or something like that, there's, I don't even, I never purposely joined this group, but you know, how people can like, sign you up for groups and you have to physically remove yourself from the group even if you didn't join yourself in the first place so there is some sort of like a reminiscing about san gabriel civic music theater southern california group and someone has been kind of like reminiscing about the seasons each year and the wizard of oz that that season came up recently and so people kept posting all these pictures and of course I was you know notified tagged in these pictures and then someone posted apparently the entire show is on YouTube of course I I definitely skimmed through that I mean there goes the rest of my afternoon thank you actually want to talk more about theater but before we do Mm -hmm. I have to ask one more question because it has been on my heart Melissa Joan Hart had that famous Cribs episode that is arguably iconic possibly infamous because she had the doll of herself as the role of paper towels I have to ask did you see that in person oh my gosh Ashley you know what I don't remember that but I'm sure I did for like two of those years Melissa and I lived on the same street we lived, literally, she lived in the big fancy, La Stancia, I think was the name of the building. It was like this big building in Studio City, these fancy, fancy, fancy apartments. And I lived like halfway down that block in my cute little, you know, apartment. And so I was at her house, like I was at her house all the time because she literally lived on the same street as me. So, And I think that that's where, if she was still in like a condo slash apartment type place when like I don't remember when the Cribs episode was but if it was during the first three years of the show then it was definitely that place and so I went there if it was after then I didn't go to to the house that Cribs was filmed at but you know what there is a lot of things I don't remember so (laughs) 
there's also a lot of things that publicists create that are sure, sure, possibly sure. not a part of our real life narrative. I don't know anyone, any, and I know, you know, randomly, I know a handful of people who have had like their home featured in a magazine or something, whatever. And there's always, always a portion of it that's staged. Oh, yeah. Always. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, thank you for the segue going back to the stage now. <laughs> okay. You are also famous for playing Alphaba and Nessa Rose in Wicked. You're one of those amazing people that have played both. Oddly, Alphaba is a famous villain, the Wicked Witch of the West, and Wicked retells her story from a different perspective. Do you think your time as Libby informed or drew you to that form of storytelling? switching the lens? Well, I'll just kind of piggyback on your original statement. Is she a villain? Anyone who kind of knows and loves the show Wicked, the beauty of it is, is that this this fantastic, intricate story that, you know, Gregory Maguire from the book wrote and then and then Winnie Holston so beautifully turned into the, the story, the book that's that's in the musical. It, it takes, you know, because the Wizard of Oz doesn't actually start until Wicked itself is three quarters of the way through. So you're seeing the before. You're seeing what led to all of these infamous moments in the Wizard of Oz when she's so evil. But very rarely do you get to see a before to get to see why someone becomes who they are. And also in this, it twists it because you see these things that you you thought from the Wizard of Oz were such horrible, horrible, horrible moments, but Wicked kind of gives you, well, this is, this is what actually led to that. And Elva really is just this ostracized soul who, is awkward and strange. She's not, I remember Joe Mantello saying in rehearsals that he didn't want, he actually, I think he might've actually said this to me in my auditions. She's not earnest. You, you want to root for her, of course, but she's not, she's not earnest. She's not, she's awkward and strange and vulnerable. And it's almost like a, I kind of equate her to like a fawn when they're learning how to use, how to walk, how they're learning how to use their, their legs. Oh yeah. If that's, if that's an analogy that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. She's, she doesn't know what to do, you know, with anything about her. She doesn't know how to channel it. She doesn't know how to use it. She doesn't know why it is. She, she really does just want to exist. I don't know that she even necessarily wants to fit in. Her brain isn't really wired that way. You see, I don't even want it to take it to like a dark place, but you see people in our culture who who turn to violence or who turn to rage. And you have to wonder what happened before to, for them to get to that place. And that's who Elphaba is. The things that she does later in life are because of the things that have been done to her. But yes, it, it definitely is in, um, you know, the elements of, mean girl or whatever. I, I don't really, I don't really find them to be relevant to Alphaba. To be honest, I found them more relevant to act two Nessaros. Mm. I mean, that's a great switch of perspective too, because even though they're sisters, there's almost a question of class and the perception of mm-hmm. who becomes a victim versus who in, in the public size becomes the villain. 
Yeah, and and Nessa Rose is far from from a perfect specimen as well. Like she has legs that don't work. She's in a wheelchair, but she's beautiful. And that is a comment on our society and their acceptance of beauty, mm. because Alphaba is capable as anyone and extraordinary. But because she's green, people treat her poorly. Nessa Rose is handicapped. And you'd think that that there might be those that could make fun of her or or judge her because of her disabilities. But then they just say, you know, but her face. And because of that, she's treated like a princess and coddled. And, you know, not to say everyone learns and grows throughout the course of Wicked. But if you if you want to, like, truly go there of like, who's the mean girl and who's not? Glinda's kind of mean or or Galinda Mm -hmm. in her youth. But again, She's very smiley about it, very happy about it, but she just doesn't realize that she's being mean. So I see, I don't know, maybe when I play Glinda, I'll have had the trifecta and I can, I'm kidding. kidding. I would love that. I think you would rock a bubble. (laughs) (laughs) I could never sing that. That's, that's a little, you know, that's, that's, there are things that are out of my, out of my reach. And I think that's one of them. I don't know. If you can belt somewhere over the rainbow, you can belt the end of thank goodness. <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the glorious soprano that I don't really have. <laughs> I would watch it anyway. That's, you know, <laughs> they are in a testament to, I mean, theater does this so much better than TV and film, in my opinion. They are three very flawed, very complicated, very interesting women mm-hmm. that their wants shape the direction they grow in. And sometimes that growth would seem to be positive and sometimes that growth seemed to be negative. And that mm-hmm. is why, I mean, even as an adult, just talking about it with you now, I learned those lessons possibly when I was watching it at a younger age, but now I'm seeing those lessons and I'm so mm-hmm. grateful for that narrative. Yeah, that's true for real life too. Like mm-hmm. a lot of times our desires and our wants dictate our behaviors and we got to keep that in check some, because it's easy to be lost with a with a, a passion and a desire and and sometimes not pay attention to the steps that we take to achieve a goal that's so true what do you think alphabet's like if you could put it into one actionable word like was her want um i think she has many wants but i think ideally she's never felt loved and I, I think that that is something that I don't even think she realizes it until she meets Fiero. But I think that the feeling of someone loving and accepting her just for who she is without anything else is something that is a major want for her. She also has um, an innate passion for uh, to be a protector. And so a lot of what she does, especially in act two, is it's all driven from her, her desire to protect her sister. Oh, I like want to tear up because she never <laughs> had like that maternal energy and then the maternal energy she gives in act two. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an amazing perspective. Well, you mentioned earlier you're a twin. I'm curious how that shaped your lens of love. Oh, gosh. You know, um, I people ask me all the time, what's it like to be a twin? What, oh, you know, and there, people are fascinated by, by twins or triplets or, you know, any sort of multiple birth. And my only answer for that is, I don't know what it's like to not be a twin. 
So I don't actually have an answer for you because I don't really know how it's different because I only know what I know. I will say that growing up, my sister and I were very different and we weren't necessarily like some twins are, are thick as thieves and they are the best of friends. My sister and I weren't really like that. Of course we loved each other. We were, you know, we shared it. We call each other womb mates. Cute. I'm not joking. Real that cute. is, you know, when we, <laughs> we either, you know, in, in, in any conversation we have, it's either sister, sister, this sister, that, or, you know, my womb mate, but we definitely went through a lot of phases in childhood into early adolescence where we weren't very close. But I will say that the differences between us and the ways that we that we kind of butted heads truly in my in, in my honest opinion, I wouldn't have changed any of it because it made us uh, it made us who we are today and it made us as close as we are today because we are now unbelievably close and love each other so much. And you know, we had also a very strong foundation. Our parents split when we were, very little, like two years old, I think, but they both remarried. And so we had, um, we had a lot of love. We didn't have a lot of material things. That wasn't something that was kind of within my family's reach. Um, as far as, you know, just we parents struggled every month to, you know, pay the bills and, and make sure that everything was taken care of. But I don't remember ever wanting for anything as a kid. Now I didn't have, you know, I'm sure that from time to time I wanted like the coolest jean, you know, we, everybody wanted the guest jeans with the, with the triangle on the butt. Totally. That was, guest jeans were so big. There were things that I, that I may have wanted that I couldn't necessarily, but my mom would always try her best to find me, you know, a knockoff version or, or whatever. But as far as like the emotional feeling of love and care, it was overflowing in my family. So I just think that the the ups and downs that my twin and I kind of went through of of like not ne- not really understanding each other very well. We had to kind of go through that to figure out who each other who we were as individuals because when you are a twin it kind of becomes the girls are here, the girls this, the girls that and you almost felt like at one point we started saying that that we should just be Jenica and Jessifer. Oh god. Because people would mix up our names all the time. Who are you? Are you Jenny? Are you Jesse? Are you you the girls? And we didn't even really look that much alike. But you you do feel this sense of like you have to carve out your own individuality because through no fault of anyone else, it's just at the nature of the beast. When you are a twin or a triplet, you just are kind of grouped in as one. You share a lot of things. I. I... I don't want this to come out the wrong way. I find it so interesting that then professionally you have kind of for small amounts of time shared your identity with many different women. Sure. I don't think I've ever really thought this out loud before, but I think that as as a twin and spending, I'm sure a majority of my, you know, adolescence and youth striving so hard to be noticed as an individual, I think that it did play a part in my study of individuals and study of people and my ability to adapt, which is something that as an actor, that's what we're doing all the time. It's like, you don't think about, oh, you're adapting to this scenario or that scenario, but that is what you're doing, especially when you think about the fact, and you know this so well, you know, the amount of work that, that someone whose desire and, and career and, or, or, dream job is to be an actor, the amount of work and time that we spend 
for no reward. Mm. The auditions that you spend days and hours and financially, you, you know, there's so many times when you've gone and you've gotten coached or you've gone to a voice lesson or you like just the, the hours and hours and hours that you spend preparing for an audition. You are not paid for an audition. You, you're doing, you're sending a, a tape or, or stepping into a room that may never be seen by anyone, truly. So you have to very quickly be able to adapt and mold yourself into someone else. I always say that for auditions, what you're getting is you're getting my initial instinct of what I've read and what I see. Obviously, if I book the job, there will be much more work put into it as far as who is this person. But in auditions, things you get stuff and you know, you get it at six o'clock at night and they're like, hey, we need this tomorrow. So it's all you can do to, you know, you, and also you got to be memorized because you, did they tell you you have to memorize 12 pages overnight? No. Is the person who books the job going to be memorized and like on point? Yeah. yeah. So that you don't have to, but do you want the job? Um, so yeah. you have to be such, it's like a quick change artist. You have to just be like, okay, this is how I see this. And this is naturally how this comes out of my mouth and then boom the minute I'm through with auditions I don't think I could tell you what one of the lines were it's just gone and you've moved on to whatever the next thing is except for those ones that stick and a month later you're still doing that like three and a half page monologue <laughs> you can't get it out of your head <laughs> totally uh we have some audience questions would you mind taking them oh sure Una from Orion Falls said, I loved you as Ivy in Bear. I still listen to the soundtrack. That show deals with some themes that are very relevant and resonant now. (laughs) And then then she asks, like Ivy, have you ever fallen for a gay man? (laughs) (laughs) I think Una may be going through this herself. Um, so I grew up in musical theater, so I feel like you can deduce from that the answer to the question. <laughs> I, um, I am right there with you. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, when we're young, we're all figuring out who we are, and you also don't see a lot other than what you want to see, so. I, mm, I stand with you. Okay. <laughs> Adam from Columbus, Ohio said, we lost Broadway during this pandemic. How do you think it will change when it returns? Um, Well, I hope there's lots of changes. I think that there's a lot of changes, both culturally and um, economically and socially that um, have all come to light kind of during the past 14 months. But I also think that it's, it's not a quick fix and it's not going to, it's gonna be a learning process for everyone. Um, but I cannot tell you, uh, I was able to, two weekends ago, I was actually able, I sat in a theater for the first time. Uh, I got to see this unbelievable show called Blindness at the Union Square Theater, or at the Daryl Roth Theater in Union Square. And it is um, audio. So you wear headphones and you sit, you have to buy tickets in pairs. And there's two seats together and they're all spread out and the lighting in the, the, the lighting constantly changes, but you listen to the entire play. It's all one narration. And I cannot tell you what it meant to me to just be sitting in a seat 
with a ticket and experiencing something that someone created. So I think that I think that there is a lot of things that sh- need to be and should be explored in in so much as as bringing back the, uh, the theater community to a place where it feels inclusive and it feels safe. But at the same time, I just cannot, I mean, just getting to do that experience, I, I truly cannot wait for the, for the moment that I get to sit in a seat and actually watch live humans in front of me. And I don't care what it is. People go, people watch movies, they watch television shows, they go to the theater for an escape. And that is something that I've always been so excited and happy to, to be able to bring to people. But I also enjoy it just as much as a voyeur and as someone who gets to watch what other people are doing. So it's just, it's been so, so long and such a crazy kind of darkness that um, I think that we're all just so happy that it's, it's, you know, finally we're seeing the light and, and people are going to get to go back on stage and um, we're all going to be sobbing, just sobbing, watching or actually performing. I totally agree. Um, you've made it to the lightning round. Oh, okay. First celebrity crush. Oh my gosh. Leonardo DiCaprio. Favorite villain. Mm, maybe Cruella. Oh, I am excited to see that this week. Me too. Me too. Me too. Do you believe in love at first sight? Mm, I believe in lust at first sight. Our eyes don't know what, what we soon might find out. So lust at first sight. Yes. Love. Nah. What's your middle name? Lee. It's literally Lee. Jennifer Lee. So Jenna, Jenna's just always been a nickname. Jenna Lee, Jennifer Lee. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, what is the greatest act of love you've ever witnessed? Mm, My gosh, Ashley, that is a hard question. It's we ask everyone. I'm sorry. Oh my gosh. Um, honestly, over the course of the past 14 months, the loved ones who were struggling with, with this unknown moment in time and this unknown disease and, and they're watching their love and care for, for their loved ones who are sick and all of the, all of the frontline workers who went to work every single day, knowing full well that they were being exposed to something that we didn't know about. I don't think that I can express, especially being here in New York City where we were hit with the epicenter of it to begin with. I don't think that I have ever witnessed more selflessness than the people who cared for all of the sick and you know the over 500,000 people that we've lost in the past 14 months in the US, the people who were caring for them, that I think is the greatest sacrifice I've ever witnessed. Well, we love our frontline workers. We love New York and we love Jenna Lee Green. Thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure, sweetheart. Thank you for having me. You're the best. <laughs> oh, Jenna Lee Green, you are just the most wonderful. Uh, today, Jenna and I talked about Clueless, the TV series, which I am trying desperately to find. Sabrina, the Teenage Witch with Melissa Joan Hart. MTV's Cribs. Drive Me Crazy. The Wizard of Oz. Wicked. Bear, a pop opera. 
Up and Blindness at the Daryl Roth Theater. If you're looking for more Broadway-inspired stories about love from Meet Cute, check out the re-release of Some of the Right Notes, currently available wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, if you're seeking out your dose of 90s nostalgia, check out That Summer 1999, also on Meet Cute. Uh, I'm just remembering right now, she didn't think I'd know what a hacky sack was. Of course I do. I love Freddie Prince Jr. Uh, make sure you go over to what she's having and rate, review, and subscribe, and reach out to us with your questions for our guests on Instagram at MeetCute or on Twitter at ListenMeetCute. We'll be back here in two weeks. I'm your host, Ashley Eskew, and... I'll have what she's having. 